0: And welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Guerra, and in today's episode, in association with Comply Advantage, we're looking at the latest trends in financial crime. Comply Advantage recently released their annual The State of Financial Crime Report for 2022, in which they surveyed 800 C-suite and senior compliance decision makers across North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific, from sectors including enterprise, banking, investments, crypto, insurance, and fintech. The report provides insights into trends that will shape the year ahead in financial crime, as well as showing what's changed in the last year. So today, we're using this report to kick off a whole discussion on financial crime, from trending areas, environmental crime, sanctions, and right through to NFTs. But before we get started, we want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Let's get started. As always, I'm never alone, but I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on all things Financial crime. So, making a FinTech Insider debut, we've got Charles Dellingpole, the founder and CEO of Comply Advantage. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Can you please give our listeners a bit of background on Comply Advantage and how this report came together?
2: Um, Awesome to be here, and thanks so much for having us on the show. I've been a huge long term admirer, and great to get such illustrious guests as Matthew and Joanne on the call as well. Um, By way of background, I started by Advantage eight whole years ago, having previously started a fintech company called Market Finance. Um, when I built Market Finance, a uh, big problem was not going to jail. So we were lending out millions of dollars every month and I had to um, be on the hook if something went wrong. So um, every single fintech company has that issue. If they are dispersing money, dispersing funds, you want to avoid things like sending it to the head of a Russian militia in Ukraine. You want to avoid sending it to cartel members. You want to avoid sending it to people who are involved in, in, in sex trafficking or drug trafficking. So what we built is a real-time database of millions of people and companies that could be a threat. And then we also have the transactional risk management software as well, and um, a variety of partnerships with other firms um, who can help fill in other pieces of the puzzle.
0: That's great. I think definitely a lot of fintechs, uh, the number one goal that is often sidelined is keep the CEO out of jail. Um, So really great to to hear Comply Advantage does a great job helping. Uh, And making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we've got Joanne Barefoot, the CEO and co-founder of Alliance for Innovative Regulation. Thanks for being here, Joanne. Uh, Can you give us a brief overview of the Alliance for Innovative Regulation and your role there? Yeah, it's wonderful to be
3: back on the show. Uh, Alliance for Innovative Regulation, which we call AIR, is a nonprofit organization based in the United States, but global in scope. And our mission is to uh, equip financial regulators with the best technology in the world, not by providing the technology, but by uh, helping the whole sector embrace and understand the need to convert from Uh, analog era to digital age technology. I'm the CEO and co-founder. I co-founded it with David Eric, Um, And I'll mention I'm a former bank regulator, and that's some of the lens that I bring uh, to this conversation.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. And making up our panel, it's also a debut appearance for Matthew Redhead, Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI. Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Can you give us a brief summary of RUSI?
1: Hello, Guerra, and and hello, everybody else. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, Yes, I'm at the Royal United Services Institute, and I'm part of their Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies, and we're a a UK and uh, Belgium-based think tank, which has been around for about 100 years, looking at security issues broadly, although the financial crime bit is something that's much more recent. We've been doing that for about five or six years, and we look at issues around money laundering, Um, illicit finance, fraud, sanctions evasion and terrorist finance and my role there is working on a number of different projects in several different areas so currently I'm looking at North Korean sanctions evasion and the uh, illegal wildlife trade and I look at a lot of other things besides so we're primarily focused on research but helping to shape the policy agenda for Western governments.
0: That's awesome. And we're going to touch on sanctions a bit later. So thanks for bringing that up. So really great to have you all on board. Let's get started. Um, Okay, so let's begin by diving into areas, uh, trending areas in financial crime in 2022. So I'm going to naturally come to you, Charles. Uh, Can you lay out some of the biggest trends noted in your state of financial crime 2022 report?
2: Um, So I think one of the real challenges for many fintechs is the sheer range and depth of different challenges um, it's never been more important and more challenging to deal with a range of issues. I think on um, on, on the report we have featured very prominently the risk of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which, as we went to press, is happening imminently with helicopters and tanks rolling through Kharkiv and Mariupol and other Ukrainian cities. Um, what we've done today is update with thousands of different entities um, the fact that those Entities are subject to asset freezes and travel bans. So you'll be fined, you'll be sent to jail if you continue dealing with those entities. But the interesting thing is, often we already had those entities in the database years ago because there's a kind of life cycle to the to the to the entities. In terms of maybe seven, ten years ago, they were linked to corruption or bribery, and therefore there was adverse media. Then perhaps six years ago, they were elected to the state Duma. Um, as politically exposed persons, but only today, for instance, um, would a number of oligarchs that were sanctioned three years ago by the US be present in the US in, 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 in the UK treasury sanctions database. So really the data set that you need has to be completely global. Um, so that's just sanctions today in one particular region, um, but we cover a whole range of other issues which are critical to Fintech's such as supply chain shocks, fraud, ransomware, crypto, NFTs, DeFi's, um, and also it's kind of global, right? So we have clients in 80 countries around the world, from Papua New Guinea to the US to, to, to Korea. So um, depending on where you are, um, there are different challenges with different groups.
0: I mean, you touched on uh, ransomware, so let's delve a little bit into that that piece, because that's you know being in fintech um, and, and tech in general. That's that's somewhere that's, that's something that that a lot of people and a lot of firms uh, have had to really endure in the last in 2021. Um, so, what have the, been the latest developments in this sector? So, like over 304 million attacks were reported worldwide during the first half of the year. So, this is equal to the number of t- attacks that happened throughout 2020. So, this is looking back at 2021, what is the current playbook for dealing with ransomware attacks? Um, so I, this is an open question to, to all of you. Like right now, uh, Matthew, I, actually I'll come right to you. You're nodding your head. Uh, what What is the playbook for for fighting ransomware attacks? Like, is there one? Uh, is it ever changing? What does it look like right now?
1: Well, I think the key thing for any business is to, this is going to sound um, slightly trite and like a, a member of the Scouts, but be prepared which is you you the reality is that the amount of ransomware, as you quite rightly point out, and the attacks is going up and it's affecting all types of different businesses and organizations. So, of course, it's it's hitting public sector bodies as well as as the commercial sector as well. And part of the problem here is, is you know, about cyber hygiene and cyber security and that not being in many cases effectively managed as it might be. And also, you um, the lack of preparation in terms of effective data backup and things like that so the first thing is to actually you know go back to first principles and get your house in order because you are going to be targeted that's the sad reality of this there are all sorts of issues about what you do when you when you get a demand and of course you'll usually be asked by some anonymous email to send um, some form of crypto cryptocurrency somewhere I mean, most governments and law enforcement agencies will say to you, don't pay, because if you pay, you're encouraging a further attack on yourself and others. Um, a lot of businesses do pay based on what I understand from what I read in reports. Um, I'm not going to comment on that, but obviously you don't want to to further things. Um, and then there's the further issue of what you do to clean up afterwards in terms of your own security. And, and that requires a sort of very, you know, very often in most cases, switching everything off um cleaning everything and then switching it back on. Um and that's of course in those circumstances what it, what makes it most important to ensure that you've backed up your data. So um I, I think um as I say, be prepared um and be ready for the attack when it comes and have an incident plan in place, I would say, um in terms of dealing with this.
0: Matthew, thank you so much for that. Uh, Joanne, what are your thoughts on ransomware and, and being prepared around uh, and and really the, the response that you you've seen. I really have a question for my co-panelists.
3: It's something I've been giving a lot of thought to, which is that ransomware is normally or maybe always framed as payment in Bitcoin. And uh, obviously criminals like Bitcoin because it's anonymous like cash, but you can use it online or uh, use it and get it in various ways. And Bitcoin is anonymous at the point of transaction, but there are ways to trace it because the transactions are happening on public blockchains. Matthew, you're nodding your head. We were involved at Air. We did a a uh, a tech sprint on finding use of cryptocurrency to purchase child sexual abuse material online, and worked with Fincen and others. And a lot of techniques came out of that for tracing the bit, the Bitcoin transactions on the um, distributed ledgers, and. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, who who is behind it. So my question is, is that a potential way to shut down ransomware by being able to trace the the crypto?
1: Do you want me to come in on that? I'm very happy to. Um, I mean, I'm not a detailed expert in this, but I'm aware of firms who work very closely with law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies in, you know, North American, European countries, that help them particularly with the tracing of of bitcoin because they they will maintain uh you know they will identify and maintain lists of suspects accounts um and uh they have very good ways of whitelisting and blacklisting uh different good and bad accounts and those linked with criminality so there are ways of doing it i want to be careful about what i say about how we do it on 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 the call as well because i also don't want uh beyond my ignorance to to be too helpful to the criminals but i think you're absolutely right there are ways and means of doing this and i think law enforcement agencies with private sector support are getting much better at this and i i think this is you know pushing many criminals unfortunately at the moment towards other um what are often called privacy coins as a as an alternative option but let's hope that they don't Let's hope that they stick with the Bitcoin if they're going to do it because that's easier to track, as you quite rightly say.
3: Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, if if you're going through an exchange, if you want to get your money back into fiat currency, you have to go through an exchange unless you're using privacy coin or another um, more sophisticated approach. And those people do have the know your customer data on who it is. So if you can Find the pattern of how the money has moved. There's a potential to catch it, and FinCEN has a whole group on it. Uh, Chainalysis is a company that's done a lot of really sophisticated work. So maybe that's a way to go after <laughs> ransomware. I don't know. I I agree.
0: It, ransomware, or even even just general financial crime. I want to pose this to you guys, um, because for so long the onus has been on the banks and fintechs. To detect and and really report financial crime, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with law enforcement, right, and and the government. Um, and basically, what you've just said, Joanne, is 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 that FinCEN and other other government agencies around the world, um, and law enforcement and intelligence, are getting better at actually detecting this. Um, is do you think um, wh- how far away are we from like? Uh, getting to a world where financial crime is detected most of the time rather than like not as much, which is uh, right now or previously? So the
3: UN numbers that everyone uses suggest that there's north of $2 trillion a year in financial crime and that we catch less than 1% of it currently. And I think the reason for that is we're not using enough of these higher tech tools that we're talking about uh, and I think that is changing and, and is going to have to change. I doubt we'll, I'm sure we'll never get to the point where we catch all of it. That you know, human nature being what it is, people will find ways to commit crimes. But if you could take that, you know, 0.08% or 0.8% up to, uh, to 15% or 20% and really create a risk of being caught, because these crimes are incredibly lucrative. And remember, they're funding terrible things. One of my my uh, rallying cries in this conversation is we should not be thinking about these issues as compliance uh, and bureaucratic process issues. You know, the, the money is being laundered to fund trafficking and we- weapons and drugs and uh, endangered wildlife, and looted antiquities, and human beings. And and it's attractive because it's profitable and because you probably won't get caught. So we mm-hmm. need to just use all the technology
0: to fix it. And I think we're making huge strides on that. I really do. I, I agree. I'm going to actually come to Charles, because Charles, I, I would love to, as as someone who's providing these services um, for fintechs and, and banks and, so, and other businesses, what does this look like on your end um, in terms of uh, like what? what is the temperature of, of detecting and reporting financial crime with your clients? Like what is the, the approach right now?
2: The reason to start the company was that nothing worked. You had billion dollar fines, you had humongous compliance teams and the underlying data was flawed because you had teams of people trying to manually compile information on 8 billion people around the world, how many million could provide a risk? And so, um, what we've done is build the end to end stack with the search algorithms, the data ingestion pipelines, all of which will mean fewer false positives, as in fewer irrelevant hits, um, more true positives, as in the actual correct people, and ultimately faster client onboarding. So, you can get the client transacting faster but with a much lower operational overhead. And I think in, in in the past few days, you've seen Credit Suisse being fined millions of dollars for harboring corrupt politicians and terrorists. You've seen um, all kinds of people being linked to different Ukrainian entities. So I think, have we completed the task we set out to achieve? Like Absolutely not. Is there huge amounts of work to do? Which is why Joanne's work with uh, Matthew's Work as a thought leader in compliance is so critical i think I think like right now, very few institutions have up to date technology procedures policies um there will be multiple million dollar fines going forward um so i think I think we're still very early on to actually solve the underlying problem
0: thank you. Um, we're gonna move on. um and um, actually there, there we have a we have a script. We have got like a bit of a thank you to the producer's script. I want to go off script a little bit and kind of dive a little bit deeper into this like, you know, this this underbelly of the crypto world and um and you know, we, we were going to touch on NFT slightly, but we've touched on some of the trends previously. Um, you know, the rise of crypto is is can't be ignored. 98% of firms are saying that they're either crypto native, accept or work with crypto, uh, or at least plan to offer crypto-based services in the future. Um, this begs the question... When is regulation coming? How far away are we from regulation? I mean, right now in the states, it's it's a hot topic. It's it's a it's a developing situation. Um, but Joe, how how does the as a former regulator, how does the industry balance innovation with security and regulation um, and and controls that actually protect consumers? My
3: main analysis of this is that everyone just needs to fasten their seatbelts because we're going to be going through a very, very uh, tumultuous period in which the the simple fact is the technology is way ahead of the regulatory capacity and the gap isn't really closing. It's probably widening in most areas. Uh, I'm in the camp that believes that this set of new uh, financial innovations, crypto, Uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, um, tokenization, NFTs, and, you know, all the things that are coming with it uh, are likely to really remake the financial system, financial services marketplace in the coming years and uh, have the potential to provide tremendous benefits, but also uh, a lot of risk to the system, to individual consumers and investors you know, even to the environment and on and on. And so the balance for the industry between innovation and and regulatory concern is to recognize that your regulatory rules of the road are not going to be very clear for a long time. And so you have to figure out how to self-regulate in ways that are going to uh, avoid you running risks that you can't clearly see today. For the regulators themselves, the balance between allowing innovation and allowing um, and and providing protection and stability, it's painful. I'm glad I'm not a regulator anymore <laughs> because they have a really hard knife edge to walk. But one more thing. A lot of the solutions are going to be tech solutions on the regulatory side. I mean, I think we're going to end up regulating um Something like a DAO, a um, decentralized um, autonomous organization, with code. You know, it's going to be an entirely different regulatory
0: approach, probably than what we have today. Fighting fire with fire, yeah. Like really approaching meeting meeting the criminals where they're at. Really, um, Matthew, do you have any thoughts about regulation and and really where we are and and where we could be, um, like? For example, the UK uh, has such an incredible regulator, right? the The FCA is is heralded as one of the best, or at least most collaborative and most innovative regulators on the planet in terms of fa- the finance regulators. Um, do you think they are equipped? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot and make you critical of them, but like, what are your thoughts about, uh, like, are regulators ready?
1: Don't worry about asking me not uh, about uh, being critical. I'm more than happy to be critical. Um, I mean, yes, the FCA are one of the leading regulators globally. um, um, And they have an incredible range of expertise, uh, not only in what you might call conventional, traditional financial services, their understanding of new technology and the implications of that in financial technology is definitely growing and also in the regulatory technology space as well. However, I think one of the problems you get with regulators um, is even in the best of them, and I will include the FCA in this, is that it's not necessarily always a joined up approach. So most financial institutions deal with regulators through examinations. And I think uh, based on the conversations I've had with financial institutions, you often find um, there's a sort of, if you like, a disjunction between what happens in the examination and what uh, the examiners are expecting to see in terms of systems and processes and procedures around financial crime. And the rhetoric that comes out from the leadership of those uh, regulators about how important it is to properly regulate um, emerging fintech and uh, you know subsectors of that, if you want to think of it that way, in the virtual crypto space. So there's a lot of good uh, words coming out, whether that's actually translating through to reality straight away. I think it's going to take time, and when you think about the fact that that, that, that sort of leading in uh, leading regulators like the FCA are saying that, then you think about lots of other regulators who are somewhere behind that, and I would say most are. Uh, the standout ones are uh, MAS in Singapore, HKMA in Hong Kong, uh, FCA, and sort of the you know, group of regulators we have around the financial system in the US. The vast majority are behind that, so I think there's a long way to go. I think there's good things happening. I will say that it's positive to see the EU um, trying to grasp the nettle here with uh, its its recent AML plan, which deals a lot with crypto, both uh, that boundary between crypto and fiat, but also within the crypto world as well. I think they're beginning to get their head around it, but there's a lack of real understanding. They're trying to understand, but there's still some way to go.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, there's there's still some way to go. And I, I want to come to Charles, who you're in the services space, right? So, and I'm ass- definitely assuming not, you are interfacing and interacting with regulators, I'm sure, or at least like the businesses you work with are regulated. Um, and one of the most, I guess, lucrative forms of, of financial crime really is money laundering, right? So if we look at, the, the NFT marketplace uh, when it comes to money laundering, which, so, you know, the purchase and sale of art um, having been acknowledged to be, uh, you know, these, these are attractive vehicles for money launderers. Um, how difficult can it be to combat money laundering in the NFT space? Um, and what have you seen in your experience, Charles? Great question. Um,
2: so we work with quite a few of the leading NFT platforms. Um, the key issue is something called wash trading. And so what I can do is in microsoft paint create a picture of a cat um and then sell it to matthew um for five million dollars um paid via bitcoin logged on a marketplace and then matthew can simply wire me the money back um in theory everyone thinks my cat picture is worth five million dollars um but because it's like infantile and only has like five legs you know it it probably isn't worth five million dollars but for all intents and purposes, it appears to be um, a transaction, but actually it's simply me laundering money. So that's the precise mechanics. Um, So in terms of how you can vet those transactions to see which ones are real or not, um, there are always two ways of doing it. Firstly, there's kind of entity-based detection and then there's behavioral transactional level detection. So um, I can see in a database i can look matthew in my advantage i can say okay um matthew is linked to jeffrey epstein um he's a close associate with jeffrey epstein he's probably linked to sex trafficking he's probably linked to like you know pangolin smuggling and wet markets in china like and then i can see he's actually a um the ultimate beneficial owner of a yakuza based um uh Massage parlor in Tokyo, like so, the the lots of bad stuff about Matthew. So, for the avoidance of doubt, Matthew has no links to Jeffrey Epstein, and as far as I'm aware, no links to pangolin smuggling. Um. So, yeah, that's Matthew. Um. So that that's simply his 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 his, his well known um profile. But then there's things like cuckoo smurfing, right? So Matthew could get his niece to wire all the money instead you wouldn't know um, and that's why we would have a database of say relatives and close associates so we would know that actually um, matthew is in league with joanne barefoot who is also a yakuza crime lord um so um but, but, but let's say you get like entirely new people or by going some people and force them to transact with me then then it's behavioral right so then you could do things like in your transaction monitoring, you know, like you can have a hundred different rules, and we have various typologies that we can activate, and we can say if an account is dormant for ninety days and then suddenly activates, you have to check it out because probably it's like a sleeping agent that's that's, that's activated. Um, if you can't do that, you can do say feature extraction. You can look at let's say like postcodes, or you can look at the blockchain, and so we have an integration in our transaction monitoring platform with Elliptic. Um, so we can look at various blockchain analyses or and, and, and then once you found that you want to file a space activity ro- report so we have partnerships with joanne's hummingbird platform and uh, uh, other such special activity report providers and so yeah i think um that's the end-to-end life cycle and that's how you can detect nft laundering
0: i think yeah definitely i think um at risk of us being on a call right now with two known criminals. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I, I think that uh, that detecting this kind of crime, Charles, is it's tough. And you, you and Comply Advantage have really put a lot of work into building these databases and um, and actually, you know, creating these topologies and and really just being able to detect this crime. But can you tell me a little bit? Give me shed some light for for the listeners on like okay you've built this you know you and and other bodies uh, government bodies as well private bodies have built all these databases and all these all this information is it shared are people talking to each other
2: i think information sharing is one of those things that everyone talks about as the next big thing but never really happens right i think um i think there have been huge impediments in terms of gdpr and data sharing blockages i think you know if you, if you try and apply for a bank account with HSBC Private Bank and you're already a customer of HSBC Premier, then, then they have no idea they're linked, right? It's like even within a bank, they have no idea you're the same customer, let alone in between banks. So um, as Matthew, I think, hinted at at our um, conference two weeks ago, there are um, people in the vanguard, like th- th- there is in Holland, a kind of data sharing platform, that the, the, There are the beginnings of that, but um, that's long foretold as a solution, but we have realized none of it in the present.
3: Go ahead, Joe. I have a thought on that. And by the way, thanks for the shout out to Hummingbird. I was a co-founder of Hummingbird RegTech as well. I think that the, we need to face the fact that we're either going to have to learn to share data or we're going to lose the war on financial crime. Uh, and you mentioned before the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. We at AIR recently brought in Nick Cook, who has, who headed innovation at the FCA until last year. And I think he would probably be the first to say that they are a long way from feeling really ready to um, regulate these new kinds of things, but they are ahead of the curve. And one of the things that they did in both 2018 and 2019 was to hold big global tech sprints on uh, AML with a big focus on the issue of sharing information. And um, I, including looking at privacy enhancing technologies, PETs, uh, and my feeling is that a lot of folks don't think that that technology is ready to be the global solution for safe data sharing. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but it does seem to be the direction we need to go in, that we're going to have to have technology ways with tools like homomorphic encryption or other tools that enable safe sharing of information that also uh, protects privacy. And we have to face the fact that if we don't, we might as well hang it up. We'll catch the low-hanging fruit, the low-level criminals that one bank can see inside its system. But we'll never catch the global crime rings or the terrorism rings.
0: Absolutely. I think definitely, um, yeah, sharing is caring, obviously. <laughs> but you're you're right. It, it, it's it's a complicated, like and a very delicate balance to figure out um how to do that responsibly and, and ethically. So Finally, let's come to – let's talk about sanctions. So just for context, uh, this episode is being recorded on the 24th of February. Uh, so we're going to come to a topic that's quite quite uh, topical for right now. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about sanctions. So coming to penalties related to financial crime, specifically looking at um, how, how – uh, they are doled out, really. So, what do we mean by sanctions and how, how do they work in practice? So, um, what sanctions are available to both countries and organizations? Um, let's let's think a little bit about that. So U.S. lawmakers have suggested in recent weeks that uh, Russia could be removed from SWIFT, uh, the SWIFT network, a high security network that connects thousands of financial institutions around the world. This is an example of, of, a, of a sanction. Um, removing Russia from SWIFT would make it nearly impossible for financial institutions to send money in or out of the country, uh, delivering a shock to, the, to Russian companies and any foreign customers, especially their buyers of oil and gas and other exports um, denominated in us dollars. So before I'm going to come right to you, Charles, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing develop right now? Um, and what kinds of sanctions exist like, you know, for nations like Russia, for example, which is pretty topical, but also for organizations.
2: Great question. So, um, today obviously was the invasion of Ukraine and, Our team have been working around the clock today to keep up to date with the latest updates from the US and the UK and the EU and many other designating authorities around the world. What we've seen is a variety of different entities that have been sanctioned. Um, We saw yesterday when Russia invaded Donetsk and Lugansk um, and recognised those areas. Um, there were kind of tepid initial steps with regards to sanctions. So um, the UK sanctioned three oligarchs that were already sanctioned three years ago by US Treasury. So kind of belly limp and a couple um, of banks were sanctioned as well by the UK. The EU decided to to sanction all of the members of the Russian Duma that voted to recognise those states. Um, And the US um, sanctioned a major Russian bank um, previously that bank was subject to sectoral sanctions, so you couldn't invest in the debt or the equity of that bank, which raises their cost of capital. What they did this time was they added that bank to their SDN, their specially designated nationals list, and all their subsidiaries. So what that means is that bank is basically toxic and that's the nuclear option. So they can no longer transact in international trade, they haven't got access to dollar clearing. So that bank, like internationally, is, is, is basically doomed. Um, if the same thing happened to HTVC, then then that bank would collapse overnight because it's a major facilitator of international trade. So that's what happened yesterday. Today, there are further waves of different entities that are being sanctioned. So um, we have hundreds of millions of clients in our database that fintech companies, banks have uploaded, and we will ping them every day with those people that are now banned. And they have to off-board those companies, because if they keep them those accounts open, then they'll be fined. Um, for instance, um, three days ago, the um, UK Treasury, they fined a company because they were sending money to Crimea. So what happened was, after the invasion of Crimea in, in 2014, the UK government said that you can't... Transact with Crimea. This company found it very difficult to send money to Crimea, and therefore they've been fined publicly. So, if you want to avoid being fined or shut down, you need to comply with these sanctions.
0: So, yeah, sanctions are you know they're they're definitely a tool, right? And you've like Charles, I'm so glad to have you on the show because you have like up to date, like literally like minute by minute like updates of what's going on right now uh, today. But Matthew, I'm going to come to you. Um, are sanctions, the like what. Charles has mentioned, yes, it sounds it sounds impactful uh, on the individual level. It's impactful on on organizational level, um, but you know, ultimately, are sanctions appropriate? Um, only other avenues have been exhausted. Like, what other avenues exist, and and are sanctions even like effective? In period.
1: Well, uh, that's the as we're well, we're going to find out, aren't we? I mean, I think the the experience that most countries have had with sanctions over nearly a century of them being used i mean i think we first started using sanctions before the second world war um against uh largely against uh, aggressors I think people would say there's been a really mixed outcome in terms of their effectiveness. I mean, of course, if we go back to Iraq, um, Iraq was uh, sanctioned not in the smart way that we're talking about sanctioning Russia. It was sanctioned up to the eyeballs in lots of different ways, and it didn't stop Saddam Hussein behaving the way he was behaving. Um, in, I think what you're saying there about you know as it, it, these as tools of last resort, they're actually tools of first resort for the West because historically, very often, we would have said, right, we're going to take, we're going to make a military response to this, we're going to supply arms to the Ukrainians, for example, what the world we've moved to is to say that sanctions, financial sanctions and economic sanctions are the first thing we do. And very often, they're the only thing that we do. Um, So uh, I think, what else do we do? I think that's a very, that's a very difficult question. Um, and in some ways slightly beyond the scope of somebody interested in financial crime to speak about, because, of course, this is an act of of, uh, of aggression that we're talking about in the Russian case. Um, I think, are they effective? Again, I, I think they send a signal. Um, I think they can be effective in certain cases, but they require considerable coordination between different countries. And the great thing at the moment is that we're seeing the US, the EU, UK, Canada, and, and others with autonomous regimes coordinating more, but we need to make sure if we're going to get the best out of that, that there aren't any gaps. And Charlie quite rightly pointed out, you know, we've had occasions where we've, we've we now found the UK designating things, uh, entities that were designated by the US years ago. So of course, there was, a, there was a, obviously a UK out for those banks previously. We've got to have a united front if it's going to have a real impact.
3: Let me add one thought to this, uh, because I don't have the depth of expertise that you two do in sanctions. But I do think that a a technology factor that's going to impact the uh, ability of these tools to work is the emergence not only of cryptocurrency, but also central bank digital currency, CBDC. Uh, Dozens of countries are working on CBDC strategies. And China has been at the forefront, it has its yuan in market, and there's a lot of uh, thinking that we may end up with uh, the emergence of a geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China for being the world's reserve currency or being the currency of choice. And on that dollar uh, common denominator rests a lot of the international rules around uh, the ability to make people accountable for how money is moving. I, I, I think
1: that's right. Yeah, it's happening now. It's happening now. And that's why China is so interested in this. And, you know, if you go a couple of years back, you look at Russia was encouraging the Venezuelans to develop their own cryptocurrency as a way around Venezuelan sanctions. This is all part of, of of the thinking. And I think you're absolutely right, Joanne, that where we end up with this potentially is almost like twin tracks of different financial global systems, like you know, almost going back to different blocks, as it were. And as you quite rightly say, um, the more we use sanctions, the more the risk is, that we undermine the use of sanctions as well because of course we could we end up kind of pushing people out of the current international financial system.
0: And I want to I want to actually just give a shout out to a tweet I saw earlier this week which was a hypothetical situation um listed by by someone named Brandon Chung. Um he's a product manager in at a fintech and just to give context, you know, China is, is in this power struggle, right, like uh, globally and is a country that has had its sanctions imposed on them as well. So in this hypothetical, he says, you know, China is investing in buying Africa via cheap debt traps. Um, so there's tons of countries in Africa that are in debt, indebted to, to China. Um, China has created a CBDC now, uh, Central Bank Digital Currency. Um, now this is this puts China in a, hypothetically in a, in a pretty powerful position because will we see an African nation adopt the Chinese C B C as legal tender? Um, you know, in. in as a as a negotiating or or uh, term of of these of these debts of of these debt traps, um, you know, can can a foreign nation like trying to control the transaction freedom of another nation remotely? like this is it's kind of terrifying to think about this, and it, it's I think we don't even have enough time to, to really get into this, but this touches on on what you guys were just talking about, Matthew, do you have any any thoughts about that hypothetical?
1: Um I think that hypothetical will come true. Probably within the next decade, probably less than that i'm all I always kind of you know push push out to a decade. you want to push these things away, but i, I think it's I think it's happening effectively now with cre- the 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 sort of framework for that happening is is developing so five ten years yes, I think so um and quite how we handle it um i don't have i don't have an answer for <laughs> you despite coming from a think tank yeah. I need to work harder.
0: Well, you know, I think we could go on and on, and on about this, but we do need to wrap. Uh, and I, I just want to, before we wrap, I just want to ask everyone in the panel, I'll start with Joanne. Um, what's one piece of advice, you know, let's, let's, let's wrap on, on something hopeful or at least like helpful. Uh, what's one piece of advice you would give to a firm looking to protect themselves from potential financial crime in 2022?
3: I'm going to give the advice I give to everyone in these conversations, and that is speed up. Get <laughs> your technology in place faster you know sign up with comply advantage and stuff like that uh there isn't time to think about it you know these are uncertain times and people aren't sure what to do and so they wait and they evaluate and you've got to move fast the the train has left the station absolutely Matthew
1: I think that's excellent advice I think you've got to look at I I would say do a risk assessment, make sure that you fully understand your potential exposure to all these different types of financial crime that we've been talking about today, because far too often businesses just assume that they can take standard views of these sorts of things and get away with it. If you're going to calibrate your systems properly, you've got to understand your risk first.
0: Absolutely. And Charles? I would say
2: when you're building a fintech, you always want to grow more. Um, Valuations for fintechs have collapsed in the past four months, and therefore Probably money is tight, but at least for me, I think, um, I'd say take financial crime seriously and even if money isn't necessarily freely available, um, if you're a CEO of fintech, you need to take your compliance team very, very seriously and listen to what they're saying.
0: Absolutely. And my piece of advice is to yeah, partner with, with people who who are getting this right, just like what Joe said, you know, move quickly. People like Comply Advantage, um, you know, really dig into those pockets, <laughs> folks, like start to actually take this, be proactive and take this seriously. All right. So um, we could go on and on, guys. This is such a great discussion. Uh, but this wraps up today's discussion. Um, thank you so, so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Uh, we'll start with Charles.
2: So we are at com. We have the state of financial crime, the kind of 70 page survey and report, I think, to which Matthew contributed on our website
0: cool thank you
3: joanne um air is at regulationinnovation.org.
0: <laughs> thank you so much matthew
1: and we're nice and short sure, rusi.org r-u-s-i.org
0: Thank you so much. And as for me, you can find me at 11FS.com or on Twitter at notguerra. I may be tweeting some Ukraine stuff soon. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps make the show better and helps other people find it too. As always, if you want to join in the discussion, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or just email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so, so much and goodbye.